He's an incredible individual, great judge, impeccable history in every way, in every way. Every way. Except for that whole attempted rape thing. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. But why pick names? I got the feeling that something ain't right. Impeccable. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica with Radio, this is the broadcast that's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WTPA, which used to be WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle, Washington on KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountain, California, it's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Coming up, the great Heather Digby Parton will be with us here on the Brett Kavanaugh Madness, uh, who was already the most unpopular Supreme Court nominee ever, as this story just uh, continues to change by the hour, by the minute right now, following the revelations over the weekend that Palo Alto University psychology professor Christine Blasey Ford accuses him of attempting to rape her, essentially, when they were both in high school over 30 years ago. A new hearing now in the Senate Judiciary Committee is currently set for Monday, supposedly to feature both Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford. But, well, it is unclear at this hour if Ford has even agreed to participate and if the hearing will even happen. Uh, as uh, Supreme Court and constitutional law expert Ian Milheiser summed it up on Twitter, quote, so to summarize, a confessed serial sexual predator nominated a man who is credibly accused of attempted rape to be the key vote to strip women of reproductive freedom. Yeah, I think that's about where we are right now, Desi Doyle. <laughs> I think that just about sums it up. Much more on all of that in a moment. My thanks to Angie Coiro of In Deep Radio for filling in for Desi and me while we were on the road over the last couple of days, even as we are trying to keep up with the unbelievable amount of news that has not stopped breaking over all of those days, uh, including on the East Coast, where flooding in the wake of Hurricane Florence has already taken at least 32 lives. 
but that's not even the biggest or fiercest storm on the planet right now. We'll uh, cover all of that in our latest Green News report coming up in a bit. But speaking of uh, Florence and, uh, well, and Donald Trump, um, by the time this storm exits the East Coast, said uh, meteorologist Ryan Maui, over the weekend, the amount of total rainfall from the storm is expected to be some 18 trillion gallons of water. That's enough to cover Texas, he says, in four inches of water, the entire state of Texas, and fill the Chesapeake Bay. Now, if you've ever driven across Texas, <laughs> and I know you have, Des. Yes, That's I have. That's where you're from. Uh, you, you may have an idea of how much water we are talking about here. Yeah, in case you haven't driven across Texas, there's an old saying, the sun has risen, the sun has set, and here we is in Texas yet. Yes. It takes about a day to drive across Texas. Yeah. Yeah, that's how big it is. So that is a lot of water that these states on the East Coast are now dealing with, uh, not just in the Carolinas, but in Virginia and West Virginia. And it is a lot of damage to a lot of property. And so in the midst of all of this, Donald Trump has decided to slap new tariffs uh, on uh, the American people, that on, on another $200 billion worth of imported goods from China. Which, you know, could he pick a worse time? Uh, the tariffs President Trump has slapped on imports from foreign countries, including tax duties on $200 billion of Chinese goods, announced Monday, are almost certain to raise costs on homeowners in the Carolinas, hoping to rebuild and refurnish after Hurricane Florence. McClatchy reports today, while prices naturally rise after a natural disaster, given the spike in demand for building materials, Trump's trade war has already boosted costs for imported plywood and lumber, which jumped 30 percent in the six months after the Trump administration announced tariffs on Canadian softwood timber back in December. In addition, Trump's tariffs on Chinese imports have boosted prices for furniture, washing machines and other appliances. And the president late Monday announced an additional 10 percent tariff on a range of Chinese exports, which could be increased to 25 percent by the end of the year. Now, Donald Trump talks about these all the time as if he's slapping these on China. He's not slapping these on China. He is slapping these on the American people. These are taxes that you and I pay when we need to buy these goods. Michael Carpenter, executive vice president of the North Carolina Home Builders Association. Yes, the executive vice president of the North Carolina Home Builders Association is named Carpenter. Uh, he said that U.S. duties on Canadian lumber caused home construction prices to spike sharply in the first half of the year. And Hurricane Florence will not make things any better. Mark Adkinson, a uh, vice president for the International Housewares Association, said his trade group is most concerned about tariffs that the Trump administration announced Monday on these Chinese exports. Um, the proposed list subject uh, to duties is broad and sweeping, he says, affecting everything from gypsum used in sheetrock, you know, in case you need to rebuild your house because it's been flooded, 
to electronics, to textiles, to everyday housewares and kitchen gadgets. The 25% proposal, Adkinson says, is really concerning. It is more than the supply chain can handle and would result in significant price increases at retail. Uh, The administration says these tariffs are aimed at protecting U.S. farmers, manufacturers, and other companies that have been victims of foreign protectionism, but they have raised prices for consumers and various U.S. companies, including those that depend on foreign supply chains and have hurt U.S. farmers and other exporters that have been subject to retaliation. Uh, The National Association of Home Builders estimated that the higher lumber costs since 2017 have already resulted uh, in um, uh, uh, an increase in the price of an average new family home by more than $6,000. And now Hurricane Florence could end up damaging um, about 750,000 homes in the Carolinas and other states and costs more than $170 billion in rebuilding costs. And it should be noted that a lot of these people who are flooded out do not have flood insurance. And so in order to rebuild, they're going to have to rely on a lot of federal money. That federal money is going to be much more because of these tariffs. So this is like, you know, we're taxing ourselves Trump is taxing us by by adding uh, these tariffs on. You know, the reason those people did not have flood insurance is because the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, the flood maps that they have used for years now are outdated, and they need to redo those flood maps. So we are are getting caught both coming and going on these higher prices. Uh, Also, uh, before we get to our guest here today, uh, a big... um A big ruling uh, late last night from uh, a federal court in Georgia. We've been covering this lawsuit against the state of Georgia, trying to force the state to change from their 100 percent unverifiable paper ballot, uh, a a touchscreen, 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen systems change. They're trying to get them to change to a paper handmarked paper ballot system. The same type that is used in all the counties across the uh, state of Georgia for their absentee balloting. Well, uh, we now have the ruling back from uh, the U.S. District Court Judge Amy Totenberg. uh, And it is not good, at least not for the immediate moment. Uh, She issued an order permitting the November midterm elections to be conducted using Georgia's current electronic voting system, Although the system is well understood to be unreliable and unauditable, according to all of the experts in the case, and yes, according to the judge herself. The decision was in response to the Coalition for Good Governance's motion for preliminary injunctions seeking to sideline the electronic voting machines to use the paper ballots that are already used all over Georgia for absentee voting in the November 2018 midterm elections. Marilyn Marks who's been a guest on this show many times, and I hope she'll uh, be back with us this week to talk about this decision. She's the executive director of the Coalition for Good Governance, uh, the nonprofit um, organization who sued here. She says the Secretary of State Brian Kemp, the state election board, and the bipartisan Fulton County Election Board, that's Atlanta, refused to act in response to serious and repeated warnings from Congress, federal agencies, National Academy of Science, 
and scores of expert voting system uh, computer scientists that the paperless system that is used in Georgia is unfit for conducting public elections. Um, she said the defendants in the case failed to make any efforts to prepare for secure November elections. They predicted voter confusion, poll worker difficulty, long lines, and threatened to close early voting centers if the judge agreed to go with them here. And all of which, they say, uh, put the court in a very difficult position with the election less than two months away. Marx stated that the Coalition for Good Governance appreciates the time and attention that Judge Totenberg devoted to this important case. They had a full hearing on this last week. And uh, Mark says that the organization will continue to litigate to protect the constitutional rights of Georgia voters to have their vote counted reliably and that they plan to seek a ruling to mandate paper ballots for the December 2018 runoff elections that will be uh, following the November eight, uh, November 6th elections. Robert McGuire, lead attorney for the coalition, said, quote, we are disappointed that the touchscreen systems will be used in Georgia this November, but we remain confident that the U.S. Constitution guarantees voters the right to cast their ballots in verifiable, trustworthy elections, which the judge here largely agreed with, but basically said, uh, basically agreed, believed in any event, the uh, defendants who said, oh, we, we won't have enough time. It will be chaos if we use hand-marked, verifiable paper ballots at every poll, uh, every polling place in Georgia this November. Bruce Brown, uh, the Atlanta attorney for the coalition, said that Judge Totenberg's decision is broadly consistent with the positions that the coalition is taking in the case, which is true. Basically, she agreed uh, in pretty much every paragraph. She agreed with the plaintiffs here. But she appeared to feel like her hands were tied because yeah. she also believed the election officials who said, oh, it's too close to the election. We yeah. can't do that. And she agreed that the uh, that there was an urgent need for Georgia as soon as feasible to switch over to uh, to paper ballots. Um this could also have uh, big ramifications, even though they didn't get uh, for now, they didn't get these uh, the paper ballots for November. This is a federal court who recognizes that these 100 percent unverifiable touchscreens um, do not uh, meet a constitutional requirements. There is a similar case against the uh, touchscreen voting systems in South Carolina as well, trying to get them to move to paper. Uh, so the plaintiffs in that case, who we've also had on this show, uh, were actually quite pleased with uh, much of the ruling coming out of that U.S. District Court uh, from uh, Judge Amy Totenberg. Anyway, more on all of that, I hope, later this week. But i got to get to a quick break here to come back for Digby, who is standing by with the latest, at least as of right now, on the uh, stunning developments in the past several hours past several days in the seemingly quickly faltering nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court following an allegation of a decades old uh, sexual assault, an attempted rape uh, from the man who could be the newest U.S. Supreme Court justice. Heather Digby Parton joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Thank you. 
The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Senate Judiciary Chair Chuck Grassley on Tuesday said that there will be two people and only two people testifying, not any witnesses to what may have happened some 30 years ago, above and beyond those two people or anybody else, during a public hearing on Monday in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Those two people will be Judge Brett Kavanaugh and Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, the professor of psychology at Palo Alto University, who told The Washington Post that she was the author of the letter detailing the alleged sexual assault by Kavanaugh and his friend Mark Judge back in the 1980s when all three were high school students. Mark Judge, who is said to have witnessed the alleged assault by Kavanaugh, will not, as of now, be invited to testify on Monday if this hearing actually happens. Nor will the psychologists who heard about the event in question from Ford years before Kavanaugh was nominated to the Supreme Court. They won't be testifying either as of now. Just the two of them, just Kavanaugh and Ford, are currently invited to testify for some reason. But, of course, that's only if Ford agrees to appear, which, as we go to air, apparently she has not done yet, according to Grassley. During an interview with right-wing radio host Hugh Hewitt on Tuesday morning, Grassley said that his staff had reached out to Ford via email but had not yet heard back from the professor, who alleges that Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her in high school. The committee has set a hearing to review both people's testimony on Monday, but who knows if it'll happen. Grassley said when asked if Mark Judge, that classmate of Kavanaugh, uh, who was named in the allegations, if he would be testifying as well, Grassley said at this point, we have two people testifying. That's all I can say. Grassley was also adamant that the hearing would remain civil and that neither witness, uh, neither of the two witnesses would be badgered by committee members. Well, we'll see about that. He said, I'd like to see 21 members of our committee listen patiently to both witnesses and kind of act like a jury and then wait until you hear all of the evidence and make your mind up afterwards, he said. Of course, a jury would have much more evidence to work from before uh, making their determination, much more than simply the testimony of two of the three participants in the alleged assault, including uh, what they won't have here, an investigation by the FBI to refer to. Given that the FBI has reportedly yet to investigate the charge, and as Donald Trump claimed today, they haven't done so because they don't want to do so. What? Uh, Joanne Carter McCarter over at Daily Coast argues that Grassley's announcement of the Monday hearing before he's even heard back from Ford is by design. She argues that Grassley is setting a narrative which he made abundantly clear Tuesday morning in that interview with Hewitt when he claimed the fact that Ford 
hasn't yet been able to commit to that date, quote, kind of raises the question, do they want to come to the public hearing or not? Fellow Republican and South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham piped up to say, quote, she can come if she likes, but if she doesn't want to, she doesn't have to. He said that on Fox News, saying that it proves uh, that they're only asking her to testify because they have to, not because they care what actually happened to her. McCarter writes that Republicans don't want a real public hearing and Grassley and Trump have proved it by not directing an actual investigation into the matter by the FBI. As California Senator Dianne Feinstein says, quote, it's impossible to take this process seriously. She points out that Grassley uh, has invited just two witnesses compared to the 22 witnesses at the Anita Hill hearing back in 1991, which took three days. None of that matters to Republicans, she writes. Grassley is merely going through the motions and doing so in a politicized, in as politicized a matter, a manner as he possibly can. If getting to the truth was at issue at all here, she says, Kavanaugh's nomination would already be history because of his serial perjury. Serial perjury that we discussed last week on this program with Lisa Graves, who, as Senator Patrick Leahy's lead counselor on the Senate Judiciary Committee during the George W. Bush years, had her documents stolen by her Republican Senate counterpart and then shared with Brett Kavanaugh, who, as an operative at the time in the George W. Bush White House, was helping Bush's far-right judicial nominees get through the Senate confirmation hearing process. Those facts were revealed via some of the very few emails finally released from his years at the Bush White House, just as Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings got underway the week before last. In that role as a GOP operative, Heather Digby Parton argued yesterday at Salon, Kavanaugh already proved he was capable of the type of demeaning behavior towards women suggested by the serious allegations made against him from 30 years ago. Joining us now to help make sense, if that is even possible, of what is going on right now, or at least what was going on as we began the show, things could change any minute now, uh, is our old friend Heather Digby Parton. She is, of course, the much-beloved blogger known as Simply Digby. She's the proprietor of the long-running Hullabaloo blog and a regular contributor at Salon.com, also winner of the Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism. Oh, Heather Digby Parton, welcome back to the broadcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Brad. I uh, I will be shocked, frankly, if this hearing uh, uh, actually happens on Monday. Uh, but before we get to that point, you begin your piece at Salon by quoting uh, Democratic Senator uh, uh, from Hawaii, Brian Schatz, making the point that uh, we've been trying to make for a while on this show. Kavanaugh is not so much a conservative judge as a um, GOP operative. Schatz said Kavanaugh is not just a conservative jurist. He's not John Roberts. He's not even Neil Gorsuch. He's a Republican operative who is posing as a judge. Why does that come into play when when you're, uh, pardon the pun, judging uh, Judge Kavanaugh on these issues, Heather? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty, um, you know, uh, it's a pretty bold sort of 
nomination to make. I mean, this guy was part of Ken Starr's hit squad back in the 1990s. The Republicans couldn't be doing anything more provocative than to nominate someone who was involved in that, which really was a, a, a witch hunt. In my piece on uh, uh, in Salon about mm-hmm. this, I, I talked about the fact that that Kavanaugh was the, the prime um, instigator of the reinvestigation that Starr's team uh, instigated mm-hmm. into the death of Vince Foster. It had already been investigated by one special prosecutor, several committee chairmen, uh, committee hearings mm-hmm. uh, there were uh, in the Congress, in both houses. They had already had an FBI investigation, a local police investigation, a park, um, you know, whatever that... You know the park uh, service investigation. The National Park Service, yeah. Exactly. They had. I mean, it had been investigated absolutely <laughs> into the ground, and it was determined that poor Vince Foster had committed suicide. He was a depressed man who was caught up in the Washington, the maw of the the Washington beast, and he uh, obviously just you know couldn't take it, and mm-hmm. he committed suicide. When uh, Kavanaugh was hired onto the Star team, and he'd been a Star protege, by the way, even before Star w- became a, uh, a special prosecutor, mm-hmm. he was Star's boy going back into his earlier um, days, right out of law school. So, in any case, he came in and he said, "No, well, let's let's uh, reopen the Vince Foster case." Star was inclined not to do it, apparently, but um, he was convinced to do it by Kavanaugh. Because he said, we can use the, all these, in, these uh, rumors that are out there as an excuse, and then we can go in and really dig around a little bit more and use it as a, way, as a, as a tool to investigate. I mean, uh, this was an absolutely cruel and inhuman thing to do. The Foster family was already in hell over this, and mm-hmm. the whole point of it was, that Kavanaugh had it, uh, you know, he was following on uh, a, a line of questioning by uh, Rush Limbaugh, mm-hmm. who had said that, who had used some kind of rumor that was floated in a newsletter somewhere, that um, Hillary Clinton and Foster were having an affair, and Hillary had allegedly this apartment somewhere in D.C. where Foster, and the, of course the rumor was that she had actually been the one to shoot him, and they had moved the body from this apartment out to the national park there, and and this was all a big cover up. I'm not kidding. Yeah, that's I, the kind of stuff that they were saying. And yep. this is Kavanaugh, the man who's going. They want to put on the Supreme Court, who was pushing all this stuff. And they were going. They were out there. He made poor Vince Foster's daughter submit to a hair you know, to give up hair uh, hair samples mm-hmm. to prove that the bl- a blonde hair that they found on Foster's jacket actually belonged to Hillary Clinton. So. They were allegedly ruling her out. I mean, that's the level, and that's just one of the many partisan character assassinations that Kavanaugh took, you know, took part and, in and, over the years. And uh, the demeaning of women—that there was yes. this secret affair going on uh, with the with the uh, the first lady at the time uh, with Vince Foster. Uh, all of which, um, you know, underscores, uh, you write that Republicans are, quote, shrieking, as you describe it, that this so-called 11th hour claim against Kavanaugh is somehow unfair. Uh, you describe that as, quote, I- ironic as it gets. Well, boy, howdy, as uh, our friend Ari Berman <laughs> observes, Republicans refuse to even hold hearings 
for Merrick Garland, because, uh, uh, who was nominated 237 days before the election, but they said that was too late before the election in 2016 to even hold hearings for him. Now they're rushing to confirm a nominee about 50 days before an election who's been accused of sexual assault, who lied under oath five times, says Berman, who turned over just 4% of his records and was nominated by a president under investigation. There is nothing actually 11th hour about any of this. The only rush, the only reason there's a panic here uh, to get someone, seemingly anyone, sworn into this uh, vacant Supreme Court seat uh, is because they could lose their majority in, in the November midterms, right? There's no, absolutely no other rush than that. Is there? No. And it is actually, it's the other side of the coin of the delay on the Merrick Garland case. You know, they, they stretched it out, refused to hold hearings so that they could wait mm-hmm. until that election. This time they're trying, they're truncating it to a ridiculously, um, you know, creating a ridiculous deadline for no good reason, for the same reason, because they want to put, you know, their, some kind, they want to avert the normal processes in order to get their far-right wingnut onto the court. I mean, this is, they are perverting every norm, and they have been for, you know, we've, we, you and I have talked about this a lot mm-hmm. over since Trump came on the scene, really. Um, but this one is particularly egregious. I mean, what they're doing with the court, they're establishing a generation-long, um, you know, legacy of extreme wingnutia on the court, and, and this you know, the idea that they're saying, oh, we have to hurry up now, there's a deadline on this, and it's an arbitrary one that they're putting, and they're trying to say now that, well, you know, this this accuser, this alleged victim, uh, if she doesn't show up, you know, at a moment's notice, well, sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, what, you know, what choice do we have but to put an accused sexual assaulter on the Supreme Court? Uh, It's absurd on its face. I mean... There, you know, a, it's the deadline. What can we say? Uh, yeah, I know. We have to do it. Uh, it's it's absurd in so many ways, and the story is changing so quickly. I don't know if you've seen this, uh, Heather, uh, but Senator Susan Collins has now called on um, Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Chuck Grassley and Ranking Member Dianne Feinstein to allow for the lawyers representing Kavanaugh and the one uh, representing Ford to question each other's client in a committee hearing this coming Monday. She said on Twitter she was writing to Grassley and Feinstein with that uh, request. I'd say that'll never happen, except the uh, GOP knows damn well that Collins is central to pushing Kavanaugh through at this point. They need to appease her somehow. Do you see any chance of... That happening, and and frankly, would it even be good for Kavanaugh at this point to have his lawyer badgering Ford as if this was a courtroom rape trial or something? Uh, I don't, I don't see any real upside for Kavanaugh on this at all. Yeah, and that's a good thing uh, because he needs to be confronted with this. Uh, he, you know, look, I mean, there is, there, uh, this should be put off for long enough to do a real investigation into this. They can go talk to people who were around at that time. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of them. Kavanaugh's, you know, early life has not really been explored. In fact, it was really weird. I don't know if you saw during the, during the hearings that uh, uh, Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana asked mm-hmm. him, you know, well, let me tell you, you know, 
let me ask you, are you more of a John Boy Walton or a Ferris Bueller? You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> not fitting. I mean, and I thought, I thought that was what happened to be watching at that point. And I'm going, what, what? <laughs> where'd, where'd that come from? You know, well, maybe John Kennedy had an inkling. I don't know. But Kavanaugh's answer, I, I would uh, urge people to go and, and look at that. It's around on the Internet. Uh-huh. Uh, what Kavanaugh did he really kind of skated over it well you know i have some friends and you'd have to ask them etc cetera, etc cetera. so this this particular period in in kavanaugh's life and let me just add it wasn't just high school kavanaugh went to yale mm-hmm. and at yale he joined deke and i think all of us who have any familiarity with these things deke is that you know it's a hard drinking uh, kind of frat. I, I, went to, I went to NYU. We don't even have frat. We didn't even have frats I didn't have there, frat so either, I wouldn't know. But, yeah. Yeah. but I know of this. <laughs> this right? is a hard-drinking fraternity. Right. And he also belonged to a secret society, not Skull and Bones, which is a much more kind of, you know, uh, waspy, upright thing. This is another one, and they, they called it T&C, and, and there were some very lewd words that they substituted for TNC. I won't say it on a family radio show. Well done. Um, and it was well, well known for its uh, super partying. Now, this is Kavanaugh in college. We're not talking about some 17-year-old high school girl. Mm-hmm. Now, there, I have not heard any allegations that he did anything untoward during that, but let's just say that that's who this guy was. He was a hard partying, super drinking frat boy guy and i think that that is worth looking into taking a little time and going and talking to some people because this guy's history everything about him says he has disrespect for women that he is a person who is you know it behaves like a privileged jerk and i think that people should have a few you know just take a few days take a few weeks and uh, look into this because I don't think anybody ever has. It doesn't seem to me. I've never heard anything. But here, we here it all is yeah, coming but, out now. But then they run up against that uh, deadline of the all November right. 6th midterm elections. <laughs> and and by the way, uh, but, you know the the bad boy in that example, I guess, is Ferris Bueller. I don't recall Ferris Bueller no. ever being uh, charged with attempted rape. No. Uh, but. To me, uh, Heather, it, all of this is sort of beside the point. Uh, and let me underscore that a, a bit earlier today, Carrie Severino, a spokesperson from the Judicial Crisis Network, which is this right wing group. They put millions into ad buys supporting Kavanaugh and millions more into a bunch of previous right wing court nominees. Uh, she was asked on uh, CNN whether or not Uh, If Ford's claims are true, if uh, that would be uh, essentially attempted rape, if that would be disqualifying for Kavanaugh and Severino's answer uh, or attempt really here to not answer was telling on several levels. Let me play this clip. Uh, Heather, and then get some of uh, so, some thoughts uh, about it from you here. If Christine Blasey Ford's um, story is true, if it is credible. Would that be disqualifying for Brett Kavanaugh to sit on the high court or or disqualifying for any nominee? Well, look, her allegations cover a whole range of conduct from from boorishness and and, and 
to rough horseplay to actual attempted rape. And so obviously, if you go to if you go to go to rape, yes, that's a, that is a, that is a really serious allegation. But we don't. This is why it, it, it'll be useful to have this hearing so we can even figure out what the, some of the specifics on those allegations are. I, I want to make sure, though, that that hearing don't doesn't think, turn thing, into though, the Carrie, same. I don't think anywhere in there is she saying this is boorish horseplay at all in her letter. I, mean, I, I, I don't think that's at all what you know, she's that, suggesting. She's certainly implying that, that, it's, that it's attempted rape, but I think you have to uh, look at there's a, there's a 35 years of memory that we're trying to play with here and I, I'm saying that the, 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 the behavior she describes could be could describe a whole range of things. I know her, I know her perception of it was one, it was one way. So Oh my God. Heather, it, it, even if her perception of it, let's 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 give her the benefit of the doubt. Let's let's give Carrie Severino here the benefit of the doubt. It was uh, 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 Christine Ford's perception of it. In fact, it was only rough horseplay, uh, as she describes there. Even if that is true, giving Kavanaugh the benefit of the doubt, he said it never happened. So right. it's not really about what happened thirty years ago. This is about. A, a, a nominee to the Supreme Court lying today, period, no? Absolutely. And not only that, you know, he apparently told Orrin Hatch, I don't think he did this under oath, but he told him, evidently, that he had never been to this party, which nobody mm -hmm. knows exactly when this party was or where it was. Even the the victim can't remember this, that specific of, so, of whose house it was at. So how does he um, know? So how did he know he wasn't there? Right. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> and this is a guy, keep in mind, who couldn't remember that his best friend worked for the law firm that, um, you know, is Donald, was Donald Trump's personal lawyer uh -huh. when asked whether or not they'd ever discovered. He couldn't remember that. He didn't remember that, that, that his best friend worked there, what the name of the mm. law firm was. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. he's been there like 12 years, something like that. Um, you know, this guy has some very interesting um, memory issues. And uh, even, you know, the idea that anybody would get on television and say, well, it could have just been rough horseplay, that's, I mean, we know what was described in that, and no one would call that rough horseplay. Two boys, drunken boys, dragging a girl into, uh, into a room, yeah. locking the door, turning the, the music up, Loudly, so no one could hear her scream, clamping his hand on top of her mouth when she tried, groping her, ripping at her clothes. And the only thing that stopped it was because her, his loudish friend, who there's a whole other story about the loudish friend who was there. Mark Judge, uh, who, yeah. Yes, he's, and he should be testifying as well, since right. he's a witness, right? Uh, uh, apparently. Um, that... Uh, he jumped on top of Kavanaugh, and they went because they were so drunk. They went, they went tumbling off onto the floor, and she managed to get away and go lock herself in the bathroom. I don't know. That just doesn't strike me as, uh, you know, rough horseplay. No. You know, that dis that describes, a, a, you know, a violent assault. Well, it, it, it does. It does, but uh, again, and I, I uh, just out of an abundance of fairness that he certainly doesn't deserve. But even if. Uh, you know, the best case scenario for this was that she misinterpreted what he did. 
He didn't say that. He didn't say, oh. uh, you know, oh, this was just uh, she, you know, we were having fun at a party and uh, it got a little bit out of hand and she probably saw it as much worse than it was. He's saying it never happened. He has categorically denied it ever happened. He was ever at the party. That seems to me I, I, we can go back and forth, I guess, and maybe we will on Monday. Uh, we can go back and forth on, you know, the old he said, she said. But in this case, it doesn't seem really that it ultimately matters if he is willing to lie. You know, never mind whether he should be forgiven what he did when he was 17 years old. He's lied seemingly today and he's 53 years old and he's about to be sitting on the Supreme Court for, with a lifetime appointment. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, look, he also has said that he didn't do any, he's never done anything like that. He's never been, you know, this is a guy who in his high school yearbook calls himself the, you know, the, the, the king of the Beach City Ralph Club, which, uh, you know, was a drunken, you know, an allusion to, mm -hmm. you know, vomiting from being drunk. And that he was treasurer of the keg of the kegger club, the 100 keg club. I mean, this is <laughs> this is who this guy is. Yep. He's a guy who goes to parties and got you know blind drunk. And his friend wrote a book about it and, and used the name Bart O'Kavanaugh right. <laughs> as a pseudonym. Who? Seriously, totally different. Never <laughs> right. heard of who him. could he have been talking yeah. about? And who was described as 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 throwing up in the back seat of a car because he was so drunk. I mean, look, this kind of drunken behavior. Now, you know, again, uh, you, you can give him, you know, the benefit of the doubt. We can say, well, he was 17. I, you know, I'm not willing to do that, but mm -hmm. a lot of people might. Mm -hmm. um, but as you say, he's denied all of it. Now, is it logical to assume that a, a guy who in his yearbook is that guy who his best friend at the time wrote books about how drunk they all were, all the time that um, you know he's telling the truth when he says he couldn't possibly have done such a thing. Of course he could. Maybe I mean if he'd have come out and said, "Hey, look, you know, I was in those days. I drank way too mm -hmm. much. I don't drink anymore. Yeah. I may have blacked out. I don't remember right. this because I was so drunk. And if it happened, my God, you know, the horror. I I, I want to do anything I can to make it up for her. I would find that you know kind of fatuous and <laughs> and repulsive because I know this guy." But that would make a lot more sense. Right. That would be at least have some logic to it uh, as, you know, in conforming to what we know about his, his own self-described behavior in his yearbook, you it, know, where he's talking about it. It strikes me uh, similarly to the Jim Jordan issue a few weeks yep. back when, uh, you know, he didn't say... Uh, Jim Jordan, who, you know, may be the next speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives or congressman from Ohio, uh, you know, he, he didn't say, oh, yeah, I didn't handle these allegations against this, uh, the sexual assault allegations by this doctor. Uh, I didn't handle it properly. He said, no, it never happened. He never heard about it. And he has dug himself into a hole now. That makes him a liar today. Never mind what happened yep. years ago. It seems the same thing here. Uh, Donald Trump uh, today at a joint uh, presser with, I guess, the Polish president. Don't forget about Poland. Said that he feels badly, quote, badly for Kavanaugh. That, quote, this is not a man who deserves this. Well, uh, Heather, that kind of that's the kind of thing that uh, he said about uh, White House Dr. Ronnie Jackson before Trump withdrew his nomination to become the next VA uh, Veterans Administration chief. Uh, he also said that about Paul Manafort before he didn't. 
at least not yet, issue him a pardon. Am I reading too much into it to to hear that he may well be on the verge of throwing Kavanaugh under a bus at this point as well? You know, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I could easily see them deciding that the, the better part of valor here is to withdraw. Rather, And it would depend, of course, on where the votes are headed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I could see them. Look, the, the Republicans are bleeding college-educated women <laughs> from their coalition yeah, already. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are absolutely... And that is a very important group to them. I mean, this is, you know, they depend almost entirely on white voters. And they need white women, and that they are losing. I mean, they've already lost college-educated women of other, of you know, other races and ethnicities. Um, but the, you know, there were plenty of, of white women, fewer and fewer as the years went by, who were still voting for them. And they are bleeding them, and not just the college-educated, but the non-college-educated white women are moving too. This is disgusting, and I think that the the Republicans looking at a hearing where a, a, you know, she's a professor. Uh, she comes up, you know, you want a college-educated woman? Here's mm-hmm. one. Uh, gets up, if, uh, presume, assuming she's a well-spoken and, and uh, articulate um, witness mm-hmm. who can t- speak coherently about the situation. Gets up there, and all these, you know, if you look at the, all the white guys on the Republican side of the, <laughs> of the Judiciary Committee, yeah. they are all white. No women, all men, many of them elderly, um, you know, like Orrin Hatch, you know, attacking this woman. And the other side is, you know, women, people of color. You've got Maisie Hirano, you've got Amy Klobuchar, you've got Kamala Harris, all of whom are really sharp. You've got Cory Booker, you've got a number of men on the Judiciary Committee who are very... um, uh, you know, committed, I think, mm-hmm. to to uh, making a good case here. I mean, this is not something they want to they they want to see. They really don't. I mean, it could be the kind of thing that could solidify a changing of their coalition. That it would be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And I, you know, I can't imagine they want this to happen. I just can't. So maybe they'll maybe they'll say, Brett, you know, sorry, dude. Yeah, you're out. Yeah, Patrick Murphy yeah. makes the same point. Uh, he writes as Murfster35 over at uh, Daily Coast. He says they can't, the GOP can't afford to let Monday's open hearing actually take place. They're already losing women uh, voters faster than a drunken sailor loses his paycheck <laughs> on shore leave in Singapore. He says uh, that they can't, uh, that the lineup is the same uh, all white lineup they had 27 years ago. Orrin Hatch, Chuck Grassley. Uh, now Ted Cruz, who he says has the social skills and empathy of Charles Manson. Uh, but there's also uh, the, the notion that he goes on to argue that once the evangelicals actually get their fifth vote on the Supreme Court, they've already lost all these you know, women you're talking about. They still have the evangelicals. But once they get that fifth vote on the Supreme Court, they've got the evangelicals really have no more reason now to stick with the Trump cult anymore. Um, so arguably, it's bad for the GOP uh, this November, he argues, if they get their Supreme Court pick done before then. Uh, a, does that logic make sense? And B, exit question here, is this thing going to happen on Monday? We'll get you on record. Uh, well, I think, um, uh, you know, I think 
that logic about the evangelicals, I'm not real sure about that, because I think that they like Trump for a whole bunch of reasons, not just the Supreme Court. I don't. People like to make them all, you know, they're very transactional, very pragmatic, and they've made some sort of rational calculation. Eh, I don't know. I think they like the guy. I really do. I think that they they're hypocrites, and they basically... They just like the fact that he goes after the people they don't like. Mm. So that's just me. Mm -hmm. uh, the Monday thing, uh, you know, as far as that, well, you know what, I, I'll give it a percentage. I mean, I think there's probably a good 70% chance it's not going to happen uh, and that Kavanaugh will withdraw. I think that's actually a pretty good chance that it's going to happen. And if, I th if it's not that, I think there's an, uh, just as good a chance that they'll postpone this thing. Um, and try and see if they can dig their way out of it by finding something to muddy her up. Uh, I, I just don't think, I guess then I'm thinking that if there's a good chance that Monday hearing isn't going to happen for one reason or another. Yeah, I, I think so too. Of course, what that reason will be, who knows? Uh, yeah. It could be a hundred of them between now and then. Uh, and we'll be uh, shouting out to you uh, when and if we need some help figuring <laughs> it out. Heather Digby Parton, find her work, of course, uh, at salon.com and digbysblog.blogspot.com. And follow her on the Twitters at digby56. Always great talking to you, my friend. Hope to do it soon, Heather. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Brad. Okay, quick break, and the disasters continue on the broadcast. Desi Doyen joins us for the latest Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, uh, last week, late last week, uh, as the storm was just making landfall, Hurricane Florence, uh, you suggested that the we wouldn't even begin to see the worst of this until Tuesday or so of this week. Yeah. Lo looks like you're right when it comes to the uh, flooding. Yeah. Unfortunately, you are right again. Let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. This is a monumental disaster for our state. Florence continues to wreak havoc and death on the East Coast. Meteorologists in southern China warned that Typhoon Mangkut would be the king of all storms. That was an understatement. As the strongest storm of the year slams into the Philippines and Hong Kong. Plus, the CEO of Columbia Gas's parent company apologized for the event. 
Boston residents slowly returning after gas explosions destroy dozens of homes. All of that and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comments. Look at this. These rain totals are unbelievable. And the crazy thing is that this was pretty much forecasted. Huh, that is crazy. Science. It works. Go figure. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, yes, as science predicted, Florence has been a disaster and a deadly one at that. Yes, we are continuing to track the impacts of Hurricane Florence. Now a tropical depression, extremely slow moving. It is the rainiest hurricane on record ever to hit the East Coast. And its remnants are spawning tornadoes as it moves north. It's already killed one person in a building collapse in Virginia. As we go to air, more than 32 people are confirmed dead from the storm. And hundreds are still trapped by flooding awaiting rescue. 700 150,000 are without electricity. North and South Carolina both set all-time state rainfall records. The winds have died down, but the catastrophic flooding risk remains, according to North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper in a Monday press conference. The danger is still immediate. Flood waters are rising as rivers crest and they will for days. Transportation officials say most major roadways in North Carolina are impassable. Many rivers and creeks have shattered their records with historic flood levels, and forecasters say many will remain above flood stage for five days or more. I know the sun is out in a lot of places, so people want to get out of the house, and uh, I would just warn, be careful, because there's still a lot of water, a lot of rain to come over the next several days from this storm. While a comprehensive damage assessment will take time, the North Carolina Pork Council on Monday announced that floodwaters have indeed inundated several hog manure lagoons in the state with at least one breach caused by heavy rainfall. At least two coal ash waste impoundments owned by Duke Energy mm. have also been inundated or breached, including one at a retired coal plant near Wilmington. It's not yet known if the toxic sludge, which contains mercury, arsenic, and other toxins entered a nearby river. According to a court settlement in the wake of a previous coal ash spill, Duke Energy has until 2029 to close hundreds of its toxic coal ash waste sites in North Carolina. Hmm. Well, why rush? They keep spilling, they keep poisoning the water, but no hurry, I guess. Access to Duke Energy's Brunswick nuclear power plant is cut off by floodwaters, but the good news is plant officials say grid power and backup generators are still working. In Japan, failures of those key components caused the Fukushima nuclear meltdown back in 2011. And the plants that we're talking about at Brunswick are the very same model as those ones that failed in Fukushima. Climate scientists say Florence's extreme rainfall was worsened by climate change. It stalled because of a high-pressure blocking pattern, which emerging research indicates is another consequence of global warming. Warming in the Arctic, in turn, appears to be altering the jet stream that pushes weather systems across the northern hemisphere. Meanwhile, in the Pacific... Super Typhoon Mangkut, the strongest storm to hit the planet so far this year, slammed into the Philippines, killing more than 60 people, many of them in landslides, and then it moved on to hammer Hong Kong, knocking construction cranes off of buildings and causing billions in damage. Chinese officials have ordered millions of people to evacuate in southern China as Mangkut moves north, wreaking havoc across that region. 
Finally, in Boston, residents are slowly being allowed to return to the homes they evacuated after multiple explosions damaged or destroyed dozens of homes in three communities, killing one person and injuring at least 20 on Thursday. In a Monday press conference, Robert Sumwalt of the National Transportation and Safety Board confirmed that overpressurization of a gas main under repair appears to have sent a surge of gas into those homes. Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker excoriated the slow response of the gas utility company Columbia Energy, which owns the pipeline system, and instead he put rival gas company Eversource Energy in charge of the disaster response and repairs. The deadly incident underscores the inherent risks of using explosive fossil fuels like natural gas and the dangers of deferred maintenance on our nation's aging infrastructure. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. I mean, these are the prices that we pay for failing to act on our infrastructure, for failing to act on climate change. These costs don't get better with time. They only get more expensive. Well, we can just pretend they're not happening. Can we just keep ignoring them like we've been doing now for decades at this point? Won't <laughs> they just go away if we imagine them not to be? Sadly, no. No, sadly, no. And... Um very sadly for uh, so many people now suffering under this uh, storm uh, who have died and will be continuing to suffer now uh, for quite a while. Um, anyway, all right. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks to my guest today, Salons Heather Digby-Parton, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can also drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks and the Twitters. I hope you will find and follow and share me. I am simply the Brad. Uh, who am I? The, the Brad, Brad blog. blog. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and my thanks to those of you who uh, keep us continuing on your public airwaves, doing all the work we try to do every day here. Uh, we could not do it without you. Uh, those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. You keep us going, and um, I thank you for that. bradblog.com slash donate. All right, that's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.